Welcome to Australian Hiker, your online hiking resource. We're your hosts, Tim and Jill Savage. This is episode 99 of the Australian Hiker podcast, and in today's episode, we're going to be talking about altitude and hiking. Now, for some reason that neither Jill nor I can fathom, um, most hikers want to climb hills and mountains. Well, at least some do. At least some do, yeah, that's true. Um, But there's been a number of trips that we've gone on, including, say, Lara Pinta Trail or the Overland Track where people will always take the option to do the uh, hell ascents or the optional hell ascents. Um, and for us, uh, or at least for me in particular, my my view on mountains is I like looking at the mountains rather than looking down from the mountains. I think you tend to get much better views. Um, but each to his own. Um, having said that, we have done high altitude hikes, including in South America and Bhutan in the Himalayas. And we did enjoy both of those trips. Uh, But hiking at altitude carries with it its own considerations. And this is what this episode is going to be about. Now, the thing I need to say here is that we are not medical professionals, and you should always consult a doctor experienced in altitude sickness uh, and doing trips to altitude prior to to traveling on one of these high-altitude trips. Uh, And you should also pay close attention to your own health when you're actually traveling. Now, firstly, what is altitude sickness? Altitude sickness can take on a number of different forms, uh, from the mild to the severe, and at its worst, it can be life-threatening. So really, there are probably three main types of altitude sickness you're going to come across. And the first is acute mountain sickness, or AMS. And this is the mildest form of altitude sickness. Symptoms can include headaches, nausea, vomiting, fatigue, dizziness, and difficulty sleeping. The second type of altitude sickness, and starting to get more serious here, is high-altitude cerebral edema, or HACE. Uh, And when you think of cerebral, you think the head or the brain. Uh, and this is a life-threatening complication of rapid ascents to altitudes higher than 2,500 metres, but usually it involves higher altitudes. In this case, the impact of altitude can cause your brain to swell with fluid. The symptoms may or may not be preceded by uh, AMS and it can include change in mental status with those affected uh, acting in a confused, irritable or erratic way. The third type of altitude sickness is HAPE, or high-altitude pulmonary edema. And so again, when we think pulmonary, we tend to think lungs. Uh, And in this case here, another life-threatening situation um, that impacts on your lungs and can include a shortness of breath, coughing, uh, and a rapid irregular heartbeat. And in worst-case situation, your lips may turn blue because you're not getting enough oxygen into your system. From our perspective, we've both been affected by acute mountain sickness. Um, and as, as I said in the introduction, we've done two high-altitude trips. The first of the, our two trips uh, was on the Salkantai track, 
uh, and this was heading towards uh, Machu Picchu. Um, and for us, this was a real learning curve. It certainly was, I have to say. We, you know, when you're in Australia, it's really difficult to um, understand uh, altitude sickness. Uh, you know, we, we, we don't have um, mountains that are 4,000 metres or higher. It's often hard for us to um, get that uh, acclimatisation and uh, we we definitely, I think, uh, were a couple of newbies and we definitely uh, were not prepared for it, let me just say that. Now, from our perspective, probably the thing that really in- impacted on us, we, uh, we, like probably most people who were looking at doing this trip, had read the Lonely Planet Guide and you know, we'd done all the research. And at that stage, the, the the version of the Lonely Planet Guide said, yeah, you just need to turn up and you'll get on a trip, but you, know, it, you don't need to book. We flew through New Zealand and got to the airport in New Zealand uh, with a batch of other people who were doing a similar trip. It was just about a plane load <laughs> of other people doing a similar trip, I think. Uh, only to be told that oh no, it's, this is that the the Inca Trail's been booked up for ages. You know, you're not going to be able to get on there. So what this meant was when we landed in in Peru, rather than spending a few days there and working our way up to altitude slowly, we basically went through and booked a trip um, to Cusco the next day, um, and uh, got on a flight that, that took us to just on 3,400 metres. And really this did impact on me at this stage, not so much Jill. Um, And apart from being tired from a long long overseas trip and and then another trip, uh, 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 even though a domestic trip at that stage, um, I basically woke up in the middle of the night with a severe headache, nausea. I couldn't sleep very well. I was feeling really disoriented and you know, I was almost uh, hallucinating with some of my dreams. Um, it occurred to me what it was that I had altitude sickness um, and I really wasn't feeling that crash hot. I did eventually manage to get to sleep uh, and by the next morning I was fine. Jill, on the other hand, uh, was a bit different. <laughs> so we went in search of something that was going to help us. We we weren't quite sure whether or not Tim was over the altitude sickness. So I, I think uh, we got all sorts of advice about purchasing all sorts of weird things from the local shops. So just be wary of that. And um, then we headed off on our uh, Salkantai uh, track and, you know, not just because it was pretty hard going but seriously, I don't think I've ever felt uh, as bad. This is uh, a photo of of me one morning, uh, you know, rugged up, sitting in the tent with my feet out, putting my boots on, beanie on, and Tim takes a photo. I'm supposed to smile. It was never going to happen, let me tell you. <laughs> now, for us, we, you know, as we said, we'd planned on doing the Inca Trail. We did get to Cusco and... Um, uh, and we're told, yes, that the Inca Trail was booked out. You know, we weren't going to get on that. But we, we had the ability to do the alternative Salkantai track, which is um, becoming um, one that's, that's well known within its own right. So a little bit longer than Inca Trail. Um, and, and, and a higher altitude as well. A higher altitude, but quite spectacular. I think it was probably, uh, just despite the fact that I keep saying that I almost 
you know, died on that trip if if it wasn't for the the donkey. But we'll talk about that. <laughs> um, so. One of the things, um, you know, once we'd gotten over the the altitude and we started dropping back down again, we were both fine. And I think um, the big learning curve for us at this stage um, was we we realised that we hadn't really been drinking much fluid at all. Um, And uh, that for us was probably the biggest learning of this whole trip was staying hydrated was such an important thing, particularly in relation to altitude sickness. Now, in general, the treatment for altitude sickness is if you have mild altitude sickness, which is basically what we had, uh, you need to stay at the same altitude or go lower until the symptoms disappear. Uh, And that's what we did, and the symptoms did indeed disappear. Getting plenty of rest, fluids, and things like painkillers, you know, Aspro or Panadol or um, Ibuprofen of some type, are likely to improve the symptoms what you don't want to do is continue to climb higher. Now, if you have more severe signs of altitude sickness that are affecting your lungs or your brains, this is a medical emergency. You need to descend as soon as possible and breathing oxygen can help greatly. Now, so a lot of people, one of the trips that they want to do is Everest Base Camp. Now, in episode 32, we talked to Joe Bonington um, from Sydney, uh, and then Joe actually trains people to uh, to take uh, uh, to undertake these trips. Uh, and certainly, from his perspective, talking to him about a, a trip that he took to uh, uh, Everest Base Camp, normally they've got these portable uh, recompression chambers where they can actually put you into the chamber, breathing oxygen, pressurized uh, uh, if you are really severe. Um, or in Joe's case, he ended up taking one of his uh, his clients back down um, because uh, uh, he was obviously in a bad way, and the only thing that was going to help him was to uh, to go back down. So um, really, it's a matter of working out how badly your symptoms are, uh, and no matter how much you've paid, no matter how much you want to do a trip, um, your health is not worth pushing on just on the off chance that you know you you'll you'll make it to Everest Base Base Camp or make it to the top of Kilimanjaro, um, you know you need to sort of look after yourself. And when we did do the Sulkantai trip, there was uh, uh, one person who who had to turn back, um, and that meant they were in a different group, and that meant that uh, one of the guides had to uh, leave the group that they with they were with. Um, and take them uh, down the mountain a little bit until they met someone else to hand over the person. Um, as we say, as soon as you um, descend for a, a reasonable uh, distance, um, the symptoms usually abate, uh, but I think in this circumstance uh, it was a little bit more serious than that. And as we said, you know, serious Altitude sickness can be life-threatening. It's it's not worth pushing the limits uh, uh, just for the sake of saying, oh, look, I've paid for the trip. I need to complete it. Now, more importantly, I suppose, is prevention. Um, you know, if you're planning on going on, on a high-altitude trip, um, then you need to look at what are the things you can do to give you the best chance of success. And there are a number of things we're going to cover uh, briefly that will help you have the, the best chance. The first one is um, get fit. 
Uh, and this is an obvious thing for most hikes. Um, if you're doing a longer distance trip, you know, longer than a day, um, you know, if you're doing a multi-day trip that's a bit of a bit, bit of exertion, you need to build up a level of fitness. I've talked to a number of people who have done Kokoda uh, before, um, and it's not unusual for people to do very little or no training for Kokoda. And as a result, they can actually end up having issues because they just don't have the fitness level to complete it. Um, and I think this goes for any of these trips. Spend some time doing um, some fitness training. Uh, and while we, you know, the best we can do in Australia is Mount Kosciuszko, which is just on two, just over 2,200 metres, uh, we're not going to be able to train for altitude. But what we can do is train for hill ascents. So putting on a pack, um, that weighs the same as you plan on hiking with, uh, walking up and down hills uh, to simulate the type or at least the distances that you're likely to be doing overseas. Yeah, and something that we try to do is um, carry a heavy pack when we're training, so a little bit heavier than what we would be uh, using um, when we're actually doing the ascent. Um, and we also try to go up and down those hills as fast as we can. So we're not running um, by any means, um, but we are pushing the limits of what we would normally do. And, um, you know, uh, it, it's quite funny. Um, uh, we'll, we'll talk about uh, Bhutan, but one of the um, the guides said to us, you know, how fit we were and, and uh, inquired about the training that we had done and, and uh, the the sort of mountains that we'd experienced recently, and um, when when we told them about the small hill at the back of our house, <laughs> and uh, you know that was our training ground, and uh, we did it a lot, and we moved fast. Uh, he was quite amazed, but so you know, the, it 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 is a bit of a difference. Um, you're not sauntering up, and uh, you're not. Uh, you know, uh, absent of any weight. So you have to put a bit of effort into it and you can't start there. You do have to work up to it, obviously. Um, but you'd be surprised at how much you could do, um, in an Australian landscape, um, when you, when you have to simulate, if you like, uh, similar conditions. And it, it's it's for me. I uh, this this local mountain or hill that we walk up, which is Mount Angley. It, it, it's called a mountain, but it's you yeah. know by world standards, it's not a mountain. <laughs> yeah, it, it's only it's only an altitude change of around about just on three hundred meters, so it's not huge, but certainly there are some steep sections, and and it, and it is a good training uh, walk. Uh, and and almost without fail, you know, you get into New Year's just after Christmas, and all of a sudden, all these hikers start appearing with these full size packs that are weighted. Uh, obviously, training for things like the Overland Track uh, and Lara Pinta later in the year. This seems to be something you can almost guarantee that. Yep, Christmas is over. People are out doing pack training. Um, so for us, we tend to um, depending on obviously how hard or how long the trips are, um, I'll be training, um, you know, I do a lot of uh, walking uh, on a regular basis. Uh, I'm usually doing around about 70 to 80 kilometers a week. Uh, uh, and, uh, in, you know, if leading up roughly about two months out from uh, um, a, a big trip, I'm doing a pack training with a fully weighted pack. Um, and, you know, I find that day one on a trip, uh, I don't feel it because I'm used to that sort of weight. 
And the other thing about, you know, your fitness training, you don't have to, it's nice if you can get outdoors, um, but if you are restricted to a gym for whatever reason, uh, you can't uh, you can't get away, uh, the weather's bad or whatever it might be, uh, things like the stair climber in the gym, uh, things like uh, a cross trainer on an endurance track. And um, again, you might look a little bit odd if you're in the gym with a weighted pack on, um, but you could work up to that too. So, you know, there are all sorts of options and um, it is a pretty important part of your preparation for for any trip. And um, I know some people uh, don't worry too much about those sorts of things. We sort of think of it in terms of, uh, you know, minimising the opportunity for injury, um, but also uh, optimizing your potential enjoyment, particularly in the first week. So the next thing you need to think about, and we talk a lot about this, is lighten your load. And this is about making sure that you're carrying um, the essential items. Uh, it's okay to put a one or two luxury items in there, um, but really think hard about the just in case items. Uh, if it's about safety, if it's about, uh, you know, potential enjoyment, uh, if it's about change of weather, then the just in case become essential items. But, you know, make, make sure that you're really thinking hard about, uh, what you're carrying and why you're carrying it, I think is probably the, the, the biggest thing. Um, just anybody who's traveled a lot will tell you to get out everything that you want to take with you on a normal trip. Uh, it might be, you know, um, interstate. It might be overseas on a flight. Get it all out early. Um, you know, put it somewhere, put it in your bag, uh, see that it doesn't fit, <laughs> uh, thin it back out again, put it back in the bag and so on. Uh, hiking's just the same. So when you're packing, um, up for a big hike. It's the same sort of process. Get everything out that you think you might need. Um, have a look at it, thin it out, um, put it in your pack, see how it fits, see how heavy it is, and then really start to question what you've got there. I think one of the things that often surprises me, and, and again, I know a lot of people are likely to disagree with me on this, you'll go through and read a number of blogs and a number of uh, websites uh, that talk about maximum weights that you should be carrying as a hiker. And the figures that are most commonly bandied around uh, as around about the 25 to 30% mark. Um, and in all honesty, I, I'm, a, I'm a big muscular guy. And if I'm carrying 30% of my body weight, I'm not having a good time. Um, <laughs> and I'm not having a good time if I'm carrying 20% of my body weight. <laughs> so we, we so from a personal perspective, we do recommend no, carrying no, no more than 20% of your body weight. Although occasionally if you're doing uh, uh, some hikes in some very dry areas where you need to carry a lot of water, it may occasionally be over that. Um, but in most cases, um, the heaviest my pack is these days is around about 18 and a half kilos. And that's, you know, that's with three liters of water uh, and, uh, and seven to eight days of food. So, you know, it's up to you. It's, it's your choice and it's your decision if you want to carry heavier weights. But the less weight you carry, the more you're going to enjoy what you're doing. Yeah, I must admit, you know, um, on those days where uh, we have to carry extra water, um, Tim does uh, take the load a, a little bit. 
Um, but I carry my fair share. Um, certainly uh, up until, this is an interesting thing that people wonder about, uh, generally up until we get to the amount of water that we carry, we generally split the um, the weight. Um, so we split things like the tent, uh, we split the food and 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 so on. And we're, before we get to water carrying, we're probably reasonably equal and people would probably say that's a bad thing uh, given that Tim's so much bigger than me. Um, but hey, you know, I'm, I'm out there and I need to carry my load too. The place that Tim does, uh, I guess, uh, accommodate his bigger size is when we need to carry extra food and extra water. And, and, uh, you know, you, you need to be, if you're hiking with someone else, you need to be having that conversation and, you know, being reasonable and fair about it. Um, I do, I do worry and I'm probably going to, um, upset a few people here. Um, I do worry about uh, couples when they're hiking and I see the guy carrying just about everything and, you know, the the woman carrying a little bit more than a, you know, a, a day pack. Uh, I just don't think that's fair at all. Um, you're out there, you, you need to be uh, responsible, you need to be independent and my view is you need to carry the load or, you know, an appropriate load for the two of you. Now, the next one is avoid alcohol. Um, now, normally trips that are longer than a, in a one, maybe two nights, I don't drink. Um, I prefer, I just feel better and not having alcohol in the system. But it's particularly important when you're you're hiking at altitude. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's just a another thing that can complicate things. It'll, you know, the altitude is affecting your physiology, um, as as is the alcohol, uh, and you, you know, it's just a compounding issue. So, um, if you are planning on doing a high altitude trip, uh, give the alcohol a skip. I give the alcohol a skip because I can't find alcohol in a reasonable container that's light enough to warrant carrying it. Um, so, you know, we've tried sachets, we've tried all sorts of things. It doesn't it doesn't taste good. If I can't work out what to do with a decent bottle of wine, uh, I'd prefer to leave it and, and enjoy it at the end of the hike. Now, having said that, we will be looking at wine carrying options over the next, oh, no. next few, next, next few <laughs> the weeks. The coffee so, was bad enough, yeah. Tim. <laughs> I, I give the coffee a miss because I can't get the coffee that I really like. So the next thing to think about is take it slowly. Okay, so, you know, um, even when you're uh, ascending mountains, you tend to go a little bit slower than you would normally go. Um, when you're at altitude, you really do need to go much more slowly. So um, this this is a tough one. There's no competition uh, getting to the top in the fastest possible time uh, with the potential to push you over the edge from a, a, a medical or a safety perspective is not a good thing. So take it at your own pace. You will find that you will be breathing much more heavily and much more deeply and, uh, you know, you need to listen to your body. Um, you'll get to the top. Don't worry about that. Uh, but do it at your pace, not at someone else's. From uh, from my perspective, um, I find that uh, um, 
that I've you know I've gotten over the the, the real issues that I had when I you know from South America, and uh, I can actually uh, cope with altitude. The biggest impact for me is that you know anything over about three and a half thousand meters, uh, going uphill, I struggle, and it doesn't matter how fit I am. Uh, I think it, you know it's uh, it's just one of those things I just uh, just have to take it slowly going uphill, and uh, but then coming downhill uh, or going on the flat, I'm able to keep pace and and go faster than most people. Although again, over the last few years as I've gotten older, I've slowed down a bit. Yeah, we do. We go really well downhill <laughs> and on the flat. <laughs> uphill, not so. <laughs> So yeah, so yeah, if we're trying to get get a particular distance or do something, I make it up on the the downhill and the flat sections. Now the other thing is uh, knowing when to stop, um, and I think this is one of the things that um, um, you need to be conscious of in relation to uh, um, uh, knowing when the time is to actually stop the hike. And this really means that you need to have the information and the advice that gives you that ability to decide that. So certainly what I'd I'd actually recommend to people, if you're going on a trip to the Himalayas or high altitude South America or Kilimanjaro, that you go and see a travel doctor beforehand, get a, a general checkup and talk to them about what the impacts of altitude are and what you can do about it. Um, so certainly, um, uh, as I said, your local GP won't necessarily have those skills. They are a GP, they're not a specialist, whereas the travel doctors are dealing with this all the time. Uh, so we normally go to our local travel doctor, uh, find out what we can do. Um, and one option they can offer is a prescription med- medicine called Dymox in Australia. Uh, and this actually reduces the impact of altitude sickness. Um, and we actually did that um, uh, in South America. Uh, we didn't do that in South America, but in Bhutan, we actually had a script for Dymox. We only took about it, uh, took the, about half the script uh, once we'd gotten over the most of the altitude. And it's one of those sort of drugs that it doesn't impact by only taking half the course. Uh, now, whether it was a, a placebo effect or whether it was the actual Dymox itself, we had no real issue on the on our Bhutan trip. Having said that, though, you get over there, you're on a trip, and you just don't feel good. Um, you either need to stay there if the symptoms are only mild and let yourself acclimatize, or if the symptoms are severe, you need to descend back down again. Uh, and as we said earlier, it's not much use actually going on a, uh, a trip uh, if you're putting yourself at risk. So there was one day, um, you know, we were going okay. It was probably, so we did about 16 days of hiking. Um, we were probably in the, um, perhaps almost halfway through, I think, um, when we did this particular pass. And, um, you know, I, I like to be in a group, uh, uh, towards the front of the group. And I had noticed that Tim had slipped. Uh, back a little bit um, as we did this particular climb and uh, without exaggeration I have to say you know I looked back a few times and saw Tim sort of uh, he wasn't last but you know out of a dozen people he was sort of back in the group Um, and I I did notice he was struggling but the thing that really struck me most was that um, I could hear him breathing 
like like <laughs> it was loud. <laughs> it was seriously loud and you'll be pleased to know that I was feeling, you know, very sympathetic and was a good wife um, and went down and uh, uh, joined him and uh, just, you know, in, in you know, had already gone part way up and uh, came back down and, and uh, just stayed with him and monitored him, I think, mostly was what I was doing uh, as best I could. I tried to talk and, and comfort um, and we took it really, really slowly um, up. It was really interesting because at the, the top, after a very, very short time, uh, uh, Tim had recovered uh, from the exertion of getting up and being in that altitude environment. So, you know, it, it, it comes and goes, uh, be aware of it and, um, you know, monitor, monitor the people that are around you as well. I mean, there were a whole bunch of other people uh, who were struggling and I have to say I wasn't necessarily um, in the same space as Tim. It was really quite interesting but um, we had an option, I think, of going another 50 metres up a small incline to uh, put some um, prayer flags up and uh, it we swapped over. Tim decided he could do that and I looked and went, nah, I'm going to sit here and I'll watch you, thanks. <laughs> and there's actually, we've actually got an image of that in the um, in the the written version of this article um, and that was uh, that took me to just on 5,100 metres, which is the highest altitude I've ever been to. But as I said, you know, just that small little bit up the, up the rest of the hill wasn't a problem. Uh, it was just actually getting there to start with. Mm. One thing I will say with altitude sickness and, and the impacts of altitude, it doesn't necessarily affect people that are younger or older. Um, it really is one of those things. It's it's an individual thing. So just because you're young and fit doesn't necessarily mean that you'll be uh, okay. I'm certainly in the older age group, but um, I'm fairly fit for my age. I'm fairly fit for people who are uh, probably 20 years younger as well. Uh, but uh, in you know, as I said, as far as altitude is concerned, I just lose a lot of energy, so I know I need to go slower at the higher altitudes. So lastly, I think the, the biggest learning curve for us between our 2006 South American trip and our 2012 Bhutan trip was staying hydrated. I think in 2006... Yeah, we'd been on an international flight, which tends to dehydrate you at the best of times. Uh, we'd gotten into town. We hadn't really drunk that much water. Uh, we were probably drunk probably the, the, the normal amount of water that most people would. Um, but um, certainly on the Bhutan trip, we stayed much more hydrated and had a lot less issues. And as we said, whether it was because of the, the diamox we were taking, whether it was placebo effect, I think for us, it really was maintaining that water level uh, had a huge impact on us. Um, the diamox is in, an interesting one. Um, I, I think, yes, uh, yes, we did a lot better. I think we were probably a little bit more aware and a little bit more prepared so that helped um but the diamox i think i i a few days i stopped taking it i did find it it made me feel a little bit nauseated so um there were days when i wasn't taking it and wasn't really impacted by the altitude so um i look i don't know and uh you know lot, lots of other people have probably spent a lot more time 
uh, researching this and thinking about this. But, uh, you know, I think uh, Tim's talking about hydrating. I think the the other thing you really need to do is have 50 US dollars in cash in your pocket <laughs> to, to buy pay, to pay for the uh, the donkey <laughs> to take you for the the rest of the, the the journey up to the top of the hill. <laughs> yes, I've done that. <laughs> I think it might have actually been a mule by the look of it. A mule, then, I don't know what uh, it was, and the, but and, I didn't care. <laughs> and, and our guide made us the, the offer of hiring the horsey man. The horsey uh, man, the, that's the, right, the that's man. right. But there was only one horsey available and poor Tim had to walk. <laughs> okay, so... As I said, the um, for a lot of people, you know, hiking Kilimanjaro, hiking in the Himalayas, um, these are things that are on a lot of people's bucket lists. And if you've never done it before, it's a bit of a shock to the system. It really is. Um, you might be a fit hiker. You might do big distances in Australia or, uh, uh, or at, uh, at lower altitudes and get away with it quite easily. Um, but uh, spending that uh, that additional Planning time and preparation time is so much more critical on higher altitude hikes. Um, you know, you've typically these trips aren't the cheapest of trips. They tend to be more in the more expensive category. Um, we chose Bhutan over uh, over Nepal because um, uh, it's been less uh, physically impacted by the huge number of tourists. Um, and um, but yeah, as a result, it's a bit more expensive. But you know, in this case here, you, you you don't have Starbucks just across the road um, in Kathmandu. So, you know, you are getting a more remote, a more unique experience. Um, so, as I said, the thing I would really say, Jill and I aren't really into peak bagging. We're not really into climbing hills for the sake of it. Um, but going to those areas and climbing over those hills affords you access to some spectacular scenery. Um, and it really is... Um, a wonderful natural environment that you can, you can actually access. So when it comes down to it, um, do the tr- do the planning, do the fitness training, and put the time into it before the hike to get the best out of it. Okay, that's all for us this week. Um, we hope this has been a bit of an in- instructive. Uh, uh, episode on altitude and hiking. Um, it's not necessarily going to be something that everyone uh, decides to do, but certainly if you are planning on it, take the time and effort. Next week's episode, which will be episode 100 of the Australian Hiker Podcast, um, is a an interview episode, and we're actually going to be talking about trail design. Um, most of you, or some of you may be aware that uh, I have a background in landscape architecture and I have a particular interest in trail design. So we're going to be talking to the designers of the Kangaroo Island Wilderness Trail, which we've already gone through and reviewed in the past. But this time we're going to look at the the background and the process that goes through in designing and building these trails uh, that so many of us use. And I think, you know, there are going to be some really interesting uh, interviews for people, perhaps something that you don't really think about as you, you're hiking along, but particularly on those trails that are, you know, there's a tendency for um, specially designed trails. Uh, there's a lot to think about and uh, 
uh, the, the interviews we've done, I think you'll find really interesting. Okay, that's all for this week. We hope you've enjoyed. Uh, as always, you can listen to this episode on our website at www.australianhiker.com.au through Apple Podcasts, formerly known as iTunes, through Stitcher Radio, through Spotify. Um, and if you have the chance, please go through and give us a five-star rating on iTunes to help get the message out there. That's all for us. Bye for now. And bye from me.